0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at the quiz. Fox, and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, February 10th, 2024. I'm Chad Pergram. After a bipartisan border bill was blocked in the Senate this week, lawmakers on Capitol Hill may be working through the weekend to pass a foreign aid package without border security.
1: Unfortunately, uh, some of the texts had been leaked And it was already getting a lot of uh, negative reviews, you could say, uh, from from Republicans, both in the House and the Senate. And so I don't know if you want to say it was doomed from the very beginning. But as soon as that text dropped, I mean, within hours, it just it
2: felt like Capitol Hill blew up. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. We are running out of money to pay people Social Security. And the top two polling presidential candidates on either side of the political aisle do not seem to have concrete plans to address that. It seems that
3: all of the leading politicians are bearing their head on this issue, and it's really dangerous in particular for the people who depend on the programs.
0: This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. I'm here with Fox News congressional correspondent and my colleague Aisha Hosney. So Aisha, we're kind of right back where we started from. There was a song about that in the mid-70s. Uh, Maxine Nightingale, I think, uh, had that song here. <laughs> Tell us what's going on in the Senate.
1: Well, you know, a lot can change in a week, Chad. Do you remember what we were doing the whole press corps last weekend? We were all sitting around our computers and our cell phones and waiting for this Senate border deal text to drop, and we thought it was, you know, the most... Anxious moment uh, in weeks because we've been following the negotiations between Senators Langford, Sinema, and Murphy, and uh, everyone just could not wait to get their hands on their on this text. And unfortunately, uh, some of the text had been leaked um, and it was already getting a lot of uh, negative reviews, you could say, uh, from, from Republicans, both in the House and the Senate. And so, I don't know if you wanna say it was doomed from the very beginning, but as soon as that text dropped, I mean, within hours, it just, it felt like Capitol Hill blew up because people just had so many problems with this uh, really bipartisan agreement Uh, that Senator Langford had been working on with, um, again, uh, an independent and Democrat. And um, within 24 hours, poof, it was gone. And it was just stunning to see how quickly, um, you know, Capitol Hill Republicans and a lot of Democrats, too, folks on the far left, but also folks in the Hispanic caucus just didn't think it went far enough. And people just did not like this deal. Um, And so now we are back to, I don't know, where we were in October uh, and back to square one, and uh, leader Schumer had a backup plan. He said that he knew this this might happen. And so now we're taking a look at a Ukraine uh, funding bill, a global aid package, $60 billion to Ukraine, $14 billion to Israel, money for in the Indo-Pacific and Taiwan, and humanitarian aid for Gaza, and, and much more. But it, it definitely does not have anything to do with border security, which is what Republicans so badly want. And it's an interesting place because, you know, while this hasn't passed out of the Senate yet, and we're sort of in this waiting period uh, where where the Senate stalled a little bit, um, if it does pass through the Senate and gets to the House, it really puts Speaker Johnson in in a political bind here because he's got members of his conference that do not like Ukraine aid full stop. And it's going to be very interesting how he handles that. He hasn't closed the door, Chad, uh, to putting this on the floor, but he certainly wants to deal with border first and and that's what senate republicans have been saying too they want to deal with border first but but again another stunning move this week 17 senate republicans um at least voted yay to pave the way for this deal to move forward so we'll see if it it goes anywhere um but i want to ask you a little bit about what was going on in the house because i think that was where all the drama was chad speaker johnson just did not have a good week at all
0: Well, you know, you go and talk to a carpenter, and they always say, measure twice, cut once. Well, they didn't do that in the House of Representatives on not one, but two major pieces of legislation, one which was the resolution, the articles of impeachment for Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary, to impeach him. Uh, As far as we can tell, there's only been one other occasion where articles of impeachment have ever been defeated in the House of Representatives, and that was in 1997. There were a grand total of uh, four articles of impeachment for President uh, Clinton at the time and two were defeated. They impeached him on two others. So that's the o- other example here. Uh, Mike Johnson, he thought he had the votes going into this uh, the other night. Um, but what happened, and I always say it's about the math. You probably get tired of me saying that all the time up <laughs> here, but you cannot change the congressional f- physics of it. It's, it's, it's just paramount uh, importance. So Mike Johnson thought they had the votes. There had been a vote series earlier in the day they thought they kind of knew what the universe of votes were and this is where it gets very interesting there were three votes scheduled in this upcoming vote series in the evening and i kept asking the leadership team uh, how are they going to stack the vote series and this is why this is important were they going to put the impeachment vote up first and i was told no no we have an unrelated bill about the ohio and chesapeake canal we're going to do that first Now, I understand why they might do that, because you want to establish the universe again of votes. How many total members are voting? And so it was 429. So Republicans said, hey, we think we've got this. We think we have 215 votes. We can defeat Mayorkas. We can impeach Mayorkas on the next vote. And so that's why they stacked that second. But it actually backfired on the Republicans. And here's why. What Democrats did, Al Green, Democrat from Texas, had been in the hospital for emergency surgery, and he had told Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader, that he wanted to come and vote. And with the advice of medical staff, and they accompanied him to Capitol Hill, uh, he didn't vote on that first vote about the Ohio and Chesapeake Canal. And at that point, Republicans didn't know that he was going to vote on the second vote on impeachment. So that changed the voting array. Now there were 430 people voting. And there were three Republican no's, Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, you had Tom McClintock of California and uh, and also uh, Ken Bach of Colorado. So three right there. They were at the margin. Steve Scalise, the majority leader, has been out. So you have a 215-215 vote by rule that loses in the House of Representatives because Al Green mm-hmm. suddenly voted. If it was 215-214 right. without Green, they thought they had it. So, you know, I was told that as soon as the Republicans decided to put that other vote, up first, which I understand why that might be wise to do that. It actually backfired on them because they kind of hit Al Green. And then this gets kind of in the weeds here. Uh, What they did is they there were actually four members on the Republican side of the aisle who then voted against impeaching Alejandro Mayorkas. And one of them uh, was Blake Moore, who's a member of the leadership. And he switched his vote. Now, why? This is kind of complex, but it's important, not because he didn't want to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas, but because that way he was now on the prevailing side of the vote the winning side which were the no's, and he can order a revote uh, and so the vote went down 214 on the a column 216 in the nay column but it was just 215 215 they couldn't order that revote uh, yes, you could call up a privilege resolution at any time, bring it right to the floor on impeachment. But all the the work and the materials that the House Homeland Security Committee had put together for weeks, that would all go by the wayside. And the Senate might not look too hept to that if this comes mm-hmm. to a Senate trial. Now, we're told, Aisha, that, uh, yeah. you know, Steve Scalise is going to be back next week. Uh, Republicans are watching closely to see if Mozzie Peelup might uh, win this special election against Tom Suozzi. This is the old George Santos seat in Long Island. and uh, But if they lose that race, uh, they might never have the votes to impeach. So if they get uh, Steve Scalise back Tuesday, they might try to actually vote as early as Tuesday night, I should.
1: Well, and I was inside the chamber chat when all of this happened, which was just wild to watch because at first, you know, everybody, all the reporters are looking at the, the tallies and, and the votes coming in and we think they've got it. They've got it in the bag. And then all of a sudden, somebody shouts out, no, it's a tie. And that was when, you know, Al Green came in and voted and, and we were just stunned. And, and I think everyone on the, on the chamber floor was too. And it was interesting, you know, suddenly people started circling Mike Gallagher and trying to talk him into perhaps switching his vote. At one point, Jody Arrington was trying to talk with him, and you could just see his body language, Gallagher's body language was just, no, I, this is, I am." been telling you that i'm a no i'm not pivoting on this and and this is where i stand and so he just shook his head and it eventually walked off the floor i gotta ask you though because moments later they took up another very important uh resolution which of course was the, the israel aid uh and tell me about how that went because that was supposed to be a win and then it didn't turn out that way for, for johnson
0: you know, that was a little bit of an unforced error by Johnson, and here's why. Uh, he didn't have to put that, uh, that bill on the floor. Obviously, he wants support for Israel. Uh, you had the House Freedom Caucus when Johnson announced this over the weekend prior that they were going to put this on the floor. They opposed it because it wasn't paid for. And so they, and they also didn't like the idea that they were doing this as what we call here on Capitol Hill as a suspension. This is where they, quote, suspend the rules. Now, that's not something they do rarely. They do this all the time. It just says, okay, we're going to bypass the rules committee. And for either reasons of expediency or whatever, we can put it on the floor pretty quickly, uh, have a short debate about it, but it needs a two-thirds supermajority. So they had... You know, well over half of the House. I mean, they were up in the 250 range on this vote in terms of the yays, but they didn't have you know close to you know 290 to up in the upper uh, 280s, which is what they would have needed on that. And so that was a you know people might say that was a big mistake by by Mike Johnson. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so nobody knows where this Israel aid goes. And this is why we pivot back to the Senate. You know, mm-hmm. this was kind of left in the in the dark just a few days ago, I should. And that's where I want to ask you. You know, I, I talked about we're right back where we started from. This is where they were in October and November. I know. Just focusing. I know. And and so, so are we going to see possible resuscitation uh, and maybe messaging votes from both the Democrats and the Republicans on uh, border and immigration policy, border security as part of this, even though it probably won't be part of this uh, overall Israel Ukraine Taiwan package over the weekend? Well, this is
1: where I think Speaker Johnson is put into a tough bind again, because, you know, obviously his Israel aid package uh, failed. Uh, And he and like I said, he hasn't shut the door to this Senate deal, this global aid package that that might be coming his way. But here's the thing, if it if it does pass the Senate and it gets to the speaker's uh, lap, it, does he put this up for a suspension vote? Because he needs Democrats at this point. There is such a, a large swath of you know, hardliners, uh, conservatives who do not want to spend a single dollar on the, securing the border of, of another country before we secure our own border. And that has really been right, the crux of this political argument for so many Republicans. Why are we not paying attention to our own borders uh, before we send billions of dollars overseas. Um, and, and there are plenty of Republicans in the House that do believe that Ukraine needs to be uh, aided and helped, and we don't want you know, Vladimir Putin to win. But at the same time, the border is extremely important. I mean, you think about somebody like House Foreign Affairs Chairman Michael McCall from Texas, a Republican, he he thinks both issues are very important, but border is incredibly important to him as well because he's from Texas. Um, so it, it will be interesting to see how Johnson sort of navigates that. It is tough for him. And I want to also ask you about Leader McConnell, because there's been some rumblings in the Senate. Uh, this was not a great week for him either. Uh, he, you know, he was trying very hard to create support for this bipartisan senate border deal just didn't go anywhere and then folks were coming out and blaming him for this and making you know making republicans look a little silly um, for even wanting to try to negotiate with democrats um, on a border deal that they say would not secure the border and at one point i asked senator ted cruz because he kept talking about leadership and how leadership had failed and i finally asked him you know, Senator Ted Cruz, do you think it's time for Mitch McConnell to go? And he said, yeah, I think so. And, uh, you know, J.D. Vance, a a freshman Republican from the state of Ohio, also said, you know, leadership screwed this up. So just a few rumblings of, uh, you know, people just not happy with the way that Leader McConnell is leading the conference um, or or even just communicating.
0: You had a a conversation with Josh Hawley. Which I right. thought was very revealing. The Republican of very, Missouri, very tell us angry. what uh, what he had to say.
1: Yeah, he was. It was just the other day. He was very angry, and he said, "Can you believe that I haven't spoken to Mitch McConnell? He hasn't had a conversation with me in over a year." And that was stunning, I think, just to hear and and what he was basically making the point is that the leader is not speaking to members of his own conference. And that was the kind of the the claim and allegation this week was, uh, you know, he didn't have a read on what his members wanted. And so why wouldn't you be stunned if the large majority of the conference didn't like this border bill?
0: What seems to be happening with Mitch McConnell is that, you know, there was a leadership challenge to him in the fall of 2022, mm-hmm. uh, whether or not, uh, you know, he would continue as the leader. Didn't get very far. There were just a handful of senators uh, on the Republican side, maybe more, who voted against him. Uh, Rick Scott, the Republican from uh, Florida, ran against him. Uh, they kind of had uh, butted heads. But Mitch McConnell sometimes, and maybe, you know, in this situation, you know, this has backfired on him always plays his cards very close to the vest right. and maybe too close sometimes you know he, he he i talked to one republican senator says you know he always reminds us and he does all the time about how much money he's raised for all of us and they said so that kind of keeps him in good graces among many republicans uh he does have the overall but majority so did kevin mccarthy yes exactly exactly <laughs> but, but kevin mccarthy had other problems but here's, what, here's sure. what's really start here's what's really starting to go on with mitch mcconnell is that you have Republicans in the Senate now who are more like some of these Republicans in the House. Uh, Mm -hmm. Some years ago, we would call them Tea Party Republicans. Now Mm -hmm. we have Freedom Caucus folks. And and you, you mentioned Vance and Hawley, people who are MAGA folks now, aligned with former President Trump. And so they don't like Mitch McConnell. The former president has indicated that he wants Mitch McConnell out. And for the first time in a long time, Mitch McConnell, be it as the minority leader or the majority leader really doesn't have control of his conference. And this is the same problem that visited Speaker Boehner, Speaker Ryan, and Speaker McCarthy. And now this is, you know, developing in the Senate. We've not seen that before, I should.
1: Well, and, and you know, when, when people try to ask Mitch McConnell this week, you know, what happened? How did you not, I mean, were you just so disconnected from your conference that you didn't realize how they actually felt? And he tried to push back on that, that he didn't really know his conference. And he said, look, I followed their instructions. They were insisting that we tackle border and, and tackle it along with Ukraine aid back in October. So that's exactly what we did. And then he sort of shifted the blame onto Speaker Mike Johnson and said, you you know it's been made perfectly clear by the speaker that the house would not take this up even if we sent it to him almost just sort of you know pointing the finger that the speaker really undermined the efforts here and and as if uh senators republican senators didn't want to put the speaker in a bad position and wanted to make sure that he had leverage or they had leverage for better border security um and of course trump also um was a big part of that conversation too whether he was meddling in this as well but um i just don't know i mean at some point, doesn't it fall back on the leader, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's going to be a problem. I mean, there's a reason why you're the leader, to make those tough decisions and make those tough tough calls. Be it Mike Johnson, be it Kevin uh, McCarthy, be it Mitch McConnell, and that's the problem. Well, Aisha, appreciate you joining us today. You're going to be on the air over the weekend, I guess. Yes, and we'll be watching the Senate floor very closely. Absolutely. Well, Aisha, appreciate it. Have a good weekend. You too.
2: The Congressional Budget Office's latest report concludes the Social Security Old Age and Survivors Trust Fund runs out of money in 2033. So what is anyone doing about it? Well, throughout 2023, President Biden has warned that Republicans want to cut entitlements like Medicare and Social Security. In a November White House event, he said of one proposal from the Republican Study Committee.
4: Their plan would cut Social Security benefits. I thought we had this, they agreed not to do this a couple of times. But they're back at it. Benefits, average benefit cut would be 13% for people.
2: The one Republican left challenging former President Trump for the GOP nomination says yes, changes are needed if the retirement safety net is to remain. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley said at a town hall back in Iowa. But what we will do is make changes to those like my kids in their 20s, those coming into the system. We will change
3: their retirement age to reflect life expectancy. We will change rather than doing cost of living increases, we'll do increases based on inflation. We will limit the benefits on the
2: wealthy. Now, former President President Trump has a different answer.
4: You don't have to touch Social Security. We have money laying in the ground far greater than anything we can do by hurting senior citizens with their Social Security.
2: He told a Fox town hall with Sean Hannity last year that natural resources like oil and gas will cover the cost. So do any of these ideas about handling Social Security alleviate concerns? This is absolutely a terrible way to approach the issue. It's the reverse of what's true. Maya McGinnis is President of the bipartisan Committee for Responsible Federal Budget.
3: And I think the most disturbing thing is when the messenger is actually two candidates, the leading candidates for president, and we know that presidential campaigns are when mandates are set. So if you have the two leading candidates, President Trump and President Biden, pretending that we don't need to do anything to fix Social security or making up kinds of fixes that wouldn't come close to to resolving the problem, we leave the country in a really difficult place from which to actually build on real solutions. The straight talk is that Social Security and Medicare, both of these programs are headed towards insolvency in a little bit more than a decade for Medicare and within a decade for Social Security. There is no way that these programs are going to honor everything that was that they've promised without making some kind of change to them. And so what we're doing is we are marching towards a really terrible moment where benefits would be cut across the board for recipients or for providers in the case of Medicare, because our lawmakers failed to do anything. And instead of telling the truth, which is these programs need reforms. There's structural imbalances. We need to make changes. There are many options of the changes we can make, but we need to start having an honest discussion about how to make those choices. Instead, it seems that all of the leading politicians are bearing their head on this issue, and it's really dangerous, in particular, for the people who depend on the programs.
2: Have you heard anything appropriate or helpful on the campaign trail in this discussion about Social Security or entitlements broadly? Um, I know your your recent op-ed is focused on Social Security, so we can dial in on that. But have you heard anything even, you know, during earlier debates um, when maybe, you know, other candidates were still in the race that, that you would have said, ah, like, please continue talking about that? Yeah, I was
3: I was honestly bracing myself for just a totally reckless, irresponsible campaign when it came to telling the truth about entitlements. And I have to say, at the beginning, I was happily surprised in the Republican primary. You had in particular Nikki Haley and Chris Christie both acknowledging that this is an issue. And talking about the kinds of reforms that we're going to have to think about, Mike Pence also discussed this issue in a way that was direct and honest, that things will have to, that changes will have to be made. So, as I was worried about, we have seen the leading candidates, President Biden and President Trump, run away from the issue and really not level with voters at all. But I was I was really pleased when I saw candidates. And I guess Nikki Haley is the one who has left, who has talked about the program and the fact that we need to fix Social Security. That said, as soon as she told these absolutely not debatable truths about the program, people were running attack ads. People were going after it. And Mm -hmm. the problem is the way you get rewarded for honesty when it comes to Social Security and Medicare is people accusing you of things that just aren't true. They're, in fact, like Alice in Wonderland. It's the opposite of what the truth is. But when it comes to politics, scaring people often works. And so it's a really dangerous thing if what you're trying to do is – make reforms to actually save these programs.
2: Let's talk about what Nikki Haley did say, because she said, um, and she was pressed on this, um, you wanna raise the retirement age. And she said, yes, but not for people who are already, you know, receiving money from the program, maybe not even from people like me in our middle ages, but like she said, for something like, for her 20 something children. Um, Is raising the retirement age to somebody like you, who's analyzing this a no brainer? You just took the words right out of my mouth. Absolutely. There are lots of policies, and I will support
3: any of them that people come up with that would help make the program solvent again. But truly raising the retirement age for younger workers, it is a no-brainer. So first, nobody's talking about making changes that are going to affect current retirees. That's just no politician wants to go there. Um, I will say some experts on the outside say, well, is it clear that millionaires and billionaires need their Social Security benefits? Maybe they'd be willing to give them back. But politically, no one's talking about current retirees at all. But the truth is that when this program started, the retirement age was 65, life expectancy was 62. And so there wasn't going to be a structural problem. It's worth noting that the first retiree actually ended up living to be 100. So there was a little (laughs) warning light that, that even the actuaries get it wrong sometimes. But it was set up in a way that it would ensure people who lived a long time didn't outlive their savings. But now the retirement age has only gone up to 67. But life expectancies, as we know, are up in their 70s, their 80s. We have people who are living to be 100 on a regular basis. And we have not rebalanced the program so that we can afford to support people in retirement that long. It absolutely makes sense to say to people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, you're going to have to work a little bit longer, assuming you can, not if you're doing backbreaking work, not if you become disabled, not if you're not able to, there's clearly gonna be protections for people who can't work longer. But if you can, we're gonna need people to work a little bit longer. And this will be for young workers who at this point basically think they're not getting anything out of social security. If you ask them, they would say, wait, a deal where I don't retire till I'm 68 or 69 and I get X percent of the benefits that that my parents or grandparents got, that sounds great to me. So you could actually <laughs> exceed expectations while uh, increasing the retirement age for younger workers.
2: Now, you note that Social Security's Retirement Trust Fund is insolvent as of 2033. And at that point, the law says benefits have to come from incoming revenues, which would mean a uh, more than an $18,000 or close to an $18,000 cut, I think, each year to, to a married couple. Um, if it comes to such steep cuts, Do we know what the consequences of that look like for for people? It's absolutely terrible. It is absolutely unforgivable that this is even a policy
3: option that's on the table. Because the truth is there are many people who get Social Security where they don't need it at all. It's really just a small amount of their retirement savings. And there are many people who depend on it for 100% of their income. Can you imagine that we are sitting here and saying, we refuse to do anything? And so the current law is that if the trust funds don't have the money to pay for benefits, there will be abrupt across the board benefit cuts for everyone and people who depend on the program for everything will experience a 23% benefit cut. Unconscionable. Mm -hmm. It is just the absolute wrong way to think about this when what we should do is say, hey, we're gonna need a little bit from this part, a little bit from this part. But if there's a principle that I would put out there, let's protect the people who depend on the program first and foremost. That's kind of the place we could ring the fence and say, if you depend on the program, well, you can be exempt from changes. It would even be wonderful if we could improve the benefits for low-income workers who had worked their full life. They shouldn't be retiring in poverty. At the same time that we're making other changes so that the program is balanced and we don't have these brutal across-the-board cuts. But really, I don't understand how politicians, whose job it is, to run this program. Social Security is the single biggest program in the budget. And yet you have politicians who are saying, I am going to do nothing despite regular warnings from the trustees that the program is headed towards insolvency.
2: It like makes Enron look good. Are you sure you're that surprised when we've got a $34 trillion debt? Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, yeah. Maya, even if we raise the retirement age for people in their 20s, that's not going to fix things no, in the next right. decade, right? So what is the short-term solution, and is it raising taxes? I know the president's put that out there. Um, he says make the wealthy pay their fair share. He wants to raise the Medicare tax to 5%. He's on the the, the, the tax train, I think, um, but I don't see Republicans being on board.
3: Yeah, Well, when it comes to doing anything hard, whether it's raising taxes or cutting spending, that's where bipartisanship always breaks down. And most politicians opt for the do nothing approach. Fixing Social Security, there's only a couple different ways that you can do it. You can slow the growth of benefits, either for everybody or just for the people who don't need them as much. You can increase the retirement age, you can raise revenues, or you can change some of the ways that we calculate benefits, for instance, fixing how we calculate inflation. Four basic options. The problem is that the hole is so large right now, we really shouldn't be fighting over which of them we're going to do. We should be acknowledging we're going to have to do a bit of all of them. So yes, revenues are going to have to go up. The money coming into Social Security is going to have to be increased. At the same time, even if you lift the payroll tax cap, that would not make the program achieve long-term solvency. So nobody can claim that you could just do this sort of from you know a small revenue increase or small spending change you're going to have to do a bit of all so I would look at can you slow the growth of benefits for everybody who doesn't depend on the program for a large part of their income. Can you change the way we calculate inflation so that it doesn't overstate inflation can we raise the retirement age and can we increase the amount of revenues or taxes that are going into the program some of all but I will also warn about the tax increases. A lot of people who want to raise taxes to fix the program tend to talk about raising those same taxes over and over again for every program they want. Social Security, new spending, pre-K, you know, uh, reducing Mm -hmm. the deficit. You Only spend those dollars once, and so it's really important we decide what's the highest calling, what's the most important need for those dollars, because our taxes going up Yeah, they absolutely are. But you can't pretend that you can tax the same dollar over and over and over. It can only create one revenue stream. And we do need to figure out, which is what budgets are supposed to do, what the most important use of that dollar is. Hmm.
2: That's going to be a task. Okay, finally, Maya, this uh, this past week, the CBO released some new estimates. I believe you commented on them. Uh, And I'm just going to go over this so our listeners know where we're at. Thirty four trillion in debt. And the CBO says, while wow, the Fiscal Responsibility Act signed last summer eases things a bit, they they give a 10-year forecast that is stunning. This year, hmm. our budget deficit will be $1.5 trillion. In 10 years, it's going to be $2.6 trillion. That's just in one year. And of the $34 trillion we're in debt right now, $27 trillion of it is qualified as debt held by the public. The CBO says in 10 years, that'll be at $48 trillion. To our earlier point, when does this stop? Like, what, what what, does it take to stop this? these trillions of dollars? I mean, it's, it's going to take a real conversation, not just about Social Security.
3: You know, this is a huge jaw-dropping CBO report. And I know people hear CBO report and they don't immediately think, oh, I got to go read that. But go read it. It's really, it's so direct and straightforward. And the numbers tell a very concerning story. One of the things I was absolutely the most concerned about was that interest payments as of this year are the second largest item in our entire budget. Social Security is number oh. one, interest as of this year is larger than both defense and Medicare. So that is such an issue right there. The thing is, we don't know at what point it becomes a crisis that you see. It is a crisis right now. It's chipping away at our economic growth. It means that when we're next hit with a crisis, whether it's a recession or a natural national emergency or a war, We will not be as able to borrow for those emergencies as we have been in the past. It means that we are asking future generations to foot a huge bill that they cannot afford. They're inheriting so many problems that we're leaving them and a mountain of debt. But the real issue is that it suddenly can become more apparent, the crisis that we're being hit with through high inflation or high interest rates, when the people who lend us money, both domestically and abroad, decide they're not as confident in the US and they want higher interest rates if they're going to lend us money. That could be when it's a foreign country, China, Japan, Saudi Arabia, anybody who's lending from abroad, or it could be the bondholders here. And I will tell you, I've spent the past couple of weeks talking with a lot of folks in markets and they are very concerned. They are waking up to an issue that when rates were low, they didn't think much about it. They sort of kept kept investing and, and thought it was a party and rates would stay low forever. Well, they won't, and they didn't, and interest payments are soaring as a result, and a lot of the people who lend money right now are becoming very, very concerned, and that's a
2: a bad sign. Wow. Maya McGinnis, President of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: That'll do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Tomorrow, former Assistant U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Andy McCarthy, breaks down Special Counsel her's conclusion in his investigation into President Biden's handling of classified documents. And we talk about historic oral arguments at the Supreme Court over President Trump's eligibility on the Colorado ballot. Until then, I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington.
4: Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Kudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Kudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.